welcome to podcast like it's 1992 the podcast where we talk about the films of 1992 here from our perch in 2023 i'm one of your hosts Philisco. i'm your special guest host emily st james sitting in this week for your normal host stan a guy who only composes limericks about birds i was trying to find some birds bit. didn't get not there. not your bit Listen, his bit it's great it's great he's my husband i love him interesting that's tim blake nelson correct yeah i would marry yeah. a man who did fish couplets and then i get very sick of him very quickly but i would marry him i would marry him that's, with that's us today me. back again convinced that people are sick of her which is nonsense carrie corrigan you well you texted me and you were like because i was trying to get you to come back on and you were like people are going to get sick of me and i was like no but anyway well i, I but, made that face at the like which is nonsense because i i do believe Oh, I, I'm sorry. I thought Carrie, you were making that face because I was making shit up. And I was like, "That's this is a real thing that we talked about. Carrie, you know who they're getting sick of is me. They're like, That's she's just the special guest host. Where the fuck is the regular host? <laughs> Hardly. Yeah, we're like, we're, we're like 50 episodes into this and you're still the special guest host. Yep. Um, so uh, Carrie's with us today to talk about Nora Ephron's directorial debut, This Is My Life. Um, so when I realized that this movie came out in 92, um, there was only one person to text about coming on for this movie. And obviously it was Carrie. Um, so, and, and I texted you immediately. We're like, yes, like there was just, there wasn't even a question. Um, is this, I mean, Nora Ephron didn't unfortunately have that many films. I think it was like seven or eight movies, if I'm not mistaken. Is it something in that vicinity? Um, but is this one of your, one of your favorites or where does this kind of fall for you in the Nora Ephron canon um i would say this is mid-tier high mid-tier high high mid-tier it's not like my my no i don't know it might be top three it's crazy because like like i don't think a lot of people know this movie exists and i don't say that in a shitty way i i think it's they don't i mean i just think that sleepless in seattle is what people think was her first directorial debut because it was like the big hit the kind of whatever but emily had you seen this film before no not at all um i like i didn't know it existed until okay. blank check did the nor Ephron series oh sure sure and then i um yeah i i was i was oh i'm gonna watch it for the podcast yesterday i sat down to pull it up and could not remember the title i think that's a big part this title is so forgettable Correct. and like i had to look up the title Correct. after trying like my life and times and like all these things that like <laughs> sounded kind of like a thick sure. life should be in it. And sure. then I, I had, I really had a good time. I really liked this movie, but it definitely was like a movie that, I mean, Marge Simpson's the lead. Like that's, that's, that's a big part of it. And also the title's yeah. forgettable and the lead is Julie Kavner, who's a wonderful actor. And I loved her on Rhoda, which yeah. is like that. That's I'm a true Julie Kavner stand. <laughs> But, uh, but yeah, it's, it's, you know, it has a lot working against it in terms of people remembering it it exists. I mean, it's also kind of, you know, it didn't have a small budget, like $10 million in 1992, you know, that's, that's probably 30 today, something in that vicinity. Like that's, that's not nothing. And I'm assuming that this was sort of her cashing in her when Harry met Sally check in terms of her, right? her fucking 1980s like yeah. she just yeah. like wrote writing in journalism and screenwriting you know her, when harry mattel is obviously the peak of that and probably like that's the thing that convinces because 
when you're a woman working in the creative field, you have to do like 17 things before they're like, okay, you can do the thing. Uh, but the yeah, thing that men do right out of the gate. But yeah, like I, I feel like when Harry met Sally, now because it's such a seminal movie, has sort of overwritten how huge she was for how long. I, I mean, Carrie, I know that you you roll deep on Nora, um, and uh, I, I guess my question is sort of, she did, she's she was a reporter, am I or or. Uh, how did she write for she wrote for newspapers or magazines or forgive me I don't started know. yeah started at the post okay um or started at uh newsweek as a male as a male girl then uh-huh. wrote for the post um then went on to write like a column for esquire and that's where she okay. like really blew up because it was like the height of new journalism she's writing all of these like very personal but also like deeply reported pieces and then also throwing in things where it's like here's an essay about breasts and everyone's like it's 1972 what are you like what okay um and then didn't you write obviously like well they were collected like the earliest books were like collections of her pieces um but then obviously she marries carl bernstein they're like a hot little journalism it couple (laughs) he fucks around they split up she writes heartburn that's where she's like in the stratosphere because that was a huge scandal and heartburn is her first adaptation that's her first script or am i making that up i think she did something and i think she did something before that that wasn't ever like produced okay um and i can't remember if silkwood came before or after heartburn i think silkwood came silkwood is first you're right yeah. So, so Silkwood's, Silkwood is 83. It's co-written with Alice Arlen. I yeah. don't know who that is, but that's, and then she adapts Harper in 86. Both are Mike Nichols movies. Um, so, I mean. The, she like uh, writes the script for Silkwood the same year the novel Heartburn is published. So like she's, she's on right. fire at that point. Yeah. She's, uh... And then, you know, with When Harry Met Sally, I think part of it too was, and Ron, uh, Rob Reiner is very open about this, that, you know, she was so instrumental to that film, right? Like, I don't want to say co-directed, but I do think that she was very sort of hands-on with the process of making that, which is why I imagine she perhaps feels like she's ready to take the leap to, to actually direct herself shortly thereafter. But Right. And I think she has, she had spoken a lot about how like working with Mike Nichols, it was kind of like, Sure. he also let her be on set a lot and he kind of filled her with the idea of like yeah it's great to be a writer who has a director who like actually likes writers but you don't always get that and she was very interested in writing movies about women and was like sure. it's really hard to get a director who wants to make that movie and the only way that I can have control over my scripts is if I also direct them you know it's it, it is interesting <clears throat> <clears throat> she she had a fascinating filmography that that really runs the gamut of like incredible movies and then just sort of very hard movies to pull off like i don't i don't want to suggest that like like I, I think about mixed nuts and michael and lucky numbers and those are kind of batshit movies that with with a slight modulation here and there, I could you can see what she's going for if that makes sense. It's just an incredibly hard target to hit. Michael and Lucky Numbers are batshit. 
mixed nuts is good. Oh, I love mixed nuts, Dan. I, I like a, mixed nuts. I'm a yeah. mixed nuts stan. And I think like everyone hated it at the time because it's yeah. kind of mean. It's who it Nora mean. Af- it's Nora yes. Ephron's like spiky sense of humor, and it's like That's what true. you would have known if you read her work. But coming off of When Harry Met Sally, and then like Sleepless in Seattle, which is like a big cushy. Mm-hmm. soft-hearted movie and then people are like what is what is this is yeah, not for, for people who movie. don't know mixed nuts is about a suicide hotline <laughs> so it's i mean it's it's a lot i i mean i haven't seen it since i was a kid and i remember i watched it because again i was such a huge fan of when harry met Sally and slippers and seattle i was like oh well she made those movies <laughs> It's true. I'm imagining Tiny Phil like going in. Like, I was I like 13, and I was like, "This is great. I want to see Mixed Nuts." And then I remember pressing play. I'm like, "What is this?" But she also co-writes a lot of these with Delia, which I think is interesting as well. Um, her sister, uh, she co-writes. I mean, this film is is co-written. It's an adaptation of uh, the Meg Wolitzer book, um, but they, which they, uh, yeah, so they co-write th- that together. Then they co-write Mixed Nuts, Michael, You've Got Mail, Hanging Up, Bewitched. These were all co-written with Delia, which I think is, I mean, interesting. I, 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 I genuinely always think Meg Wolitzer is like my age. And she's actually like, she's in her 60s. She's been she's working for a long time. But long I think because my entry point for her was The Interestings, which is a yeah. fantastic Which a lot of people did, yeah. Um, yeah, I think that that just wrongly skewed my brain to be like, well, she's the exact same age as me. Yeah. No, she's not. She's, she's, I, she's I honestly didn't know... I, I did first of all didn't know this movie was an adaptation of a Meg Wolitzer book um, because it just my brain Meg Wolitzer doesn't like it didn't necessarily tonally make sense for me but she as you said Emily has so many books and the breadth of like she also wrote The Wife because you know mm-hmm. The Wife mm-hmm. what if there was a wife mm-hmm. um, and and <laughs> I'm the one person who likes The Wife I thought it was fun I like I thought The it Wife was fun. yeah Okay, oh, I'm not going to sit here and be like the wife is a masterpiece, but like I as as like an acting showcase, sure. I thought it was perfectly perfectly adequate. I sure. I do think Glenn Close <laughs> should have beat um, Olivia Coleman. I mean, Olivia Coleman gave the better performance. I wish Glenn Close would have an Oscar. You That's know? true. That just that feels yeah. like a thing that should happen at some point. I so. agree. How many nominations does she have now? I think she's at eight. I think Hillbilly Elegy was eight, and I'm glad she lost for Hillbilly Elegy. <laughs> I would have I mean, gone down a bit too I far. I forget that movie exists. <laughs> As we all do. I do think that when I think of, like, she, I don't know that she should have won for Fatal Attraction because Cher beat her for Moonstruck, which is the superior performance yeah. and superior mm-hmm. film. But, like, I mean, that Fatal Attraction performance is lightning in a bottle i mean she's she's really kind of doing a dance there that she i mean anyway glad close should have an oscar that i'm gonna i'm gonna see which one she should have won for um so you keep dangerously okay, well, here we go dangerously liaisons would have been would have been fine um i uh i really liked her in the big chill i think she that could be and also she would beat linda hunt and i like kind of glad linda hunt has an oscar but that's like sure. a, a a race uh swapped yeah. casting which maybe yeah it's like it's not a great <laughs> it's not a great it's look not, it's not a great performance and now it's like aged terribly sure. um so yeah i'm gonna give it to glenn close big for chill. the big chill and she not gets for, out of the way uh, on her second nom. not albert knobs actually you know what albert knobs <laughs> she beats meryl street for the iron lady but and albert knobs is mm-hmm. a terrible movie that's just the thing she gets nominated for a number <laughs> of terrible movies like 
nothing to it it's 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 crazy it's crazy the movie she's been nominated for i mean but that's whatever um so yeah so this is my life i'm going to give a little bit of context for our listeners divorcee dotty ingles played by julie kavner works in retail but she really wants to make it as a comedian uh after receiving an inheritance i don't know about receiving but sure uh it sells a house but uh dotty decides it's now or never and moves to new york city with her children erica played by samantha mathis and opal played by gabby hoffman before long dotty finds success on the stand-up circuit unfortunately this leaves little time to take care for her daughters uh when dotty begins to her manager albert moss played by dan Aykroyd. it's the last straw for erica and opal this is my life opened on february 21st 1992 it would go on to make 2.9 million dollars on a 10 million dollar budget it is 36 percent on rotten tomatoes from critics and 48 from audiences i don't people were just weirdly against this movie uh when it came out but roger reaver gave it three stars he said, the smell of grease paint and the roar of the crowd are narcotics, which have destroyed countless families, as documented in the shelves of showbiz biographies. This is my life. Tells the story of yet another family that has to deal with the performer's ego, but it's a kindler, gentler ego, and at times we even sympathize with it. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's fair. Sure. Uh, a lot of Roger Ebert's reviews are very timeless, and some of them mm-hmm. you're just like, oh, yeah, he was, like, born in the 1940s. And yeah. he has all these references that are, like, I, yeah. I understand them because my parents knew them, but yeah. It's, like, grease paint? Grease yeah. paint. <laughs> I can't believe this came out in February. Yeah, it's weird. That's like, like mm. I mean, is it? No, I guess it's not. I was going to say, like, you would go Mother's Day, wouldn't you? Yeah, I was going to say, this is a Mother's Day release. I think this is a classic Labor Day movie. I think this is a movie you throw on Labor Day, and you're like, can we get people to see this? And, like, sometimes that thing breaks out. February is the worst time for this movie. That's all I'm trying to say. I mean, it is interesting how, when you think about theatrical releases, there really were kind of, like, dead zones for a really long time, where you basically were just like, we're dumping this. And there aren't as many as there used to be because it feels like now a movie can kind of open any time, kind of. But back then, this was dumped. This was dumped, like, was it President's, President's Day weekend or something like that? Like, whoa. anyway, yeah, I don't, I don't know. But I also feel like you alluded to this earlier, Emily. <laughs> this is a movie starring Julie Kavner, <laughs> and of, of which no one probably really knows. And do we, do we think? Yeah, that The Simpsons is at its peak at this point. 1992 is, is arguably the best calendar year for The Simpsons. This okay. is when they're taking on the Cosby show and okay. occasionally beating them in the ratings. Like, this is their ratings okay. height. And do we think that people were like, well, maybe we can make The Simpsons actors break out in movies? And that's part of why Julie Kavner sort of got to star in this. Now, granted, Julie Kavner is the one actor out of the Simpsons core cast who had a career pre-The Simpsons that people knew about. She won an Emmy for Rhoda. Again, Mm -hmm. stand forever. But, um, but yeah, I I, I do, like, I do, you have to imagine that was part of their decision-making here. For sure. I mean, I guess the question that I sort of, as I was watching this, I was thinking, like, there are a bunch of actors or actresses that is that could have played this role. And I don't mean that in in a derogatory sense that were bigger names. And I do wonder whether or not this was budgetary, whether or not Nora was friends with Julie Kavner. Like, I don't like, I'm sure there were things happening that gets her this role. And she's really good in this movie. Like I I kind of, I wish that she did more movies. Like she kind of doesn't, you know, she, she, this is sort of her shot, I guess, but. 
Well, wasn't she also, I'm trying to remember if it was around this time, the big, um, the oh my God, the James L. Brooks disaster that was going to be a musical and then it wasn't. Oh, the right. Sh- what the fuck was that thing called? Uh, I'll, anything? That's I, another I'll bad title. Yeah. yeah. The Nick Nolte musical. <laughs> wasn't that like around this time? Probably. Yes. Yes. It's, 94. It's, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I feel like they were trying... Yeah, I don't know. I feel like they were trying to make no for sure. There's this movie has a James L. Brooksy vibe, don't you think? For sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, it's it, it, it's yeah. very much like okay. So James L. Brooks adapts a book by Larry McMurtry, you know, for his first film. It has that feeling of she's going to take this novel that's like kind of known but not really. It's about mother daughter relationships. She's going to turn it into her own thing. It's going to be like observational about things she's like yeah you can see a version of this movie that becomes a huge sensation and as much as i like this movie it's it's very niche it's not going to be that in a way that some of the nora friends other movies are but you can see sort of the thought process behind all of it yeah it's it's interesting because it does feel like a sort of um a you mentioned blank check, and I think it's worth noting that around that time, um, David Sims called it the forgotten gem in Efron's filmmaking career. And I do think that it does have that sort of, um, it's very uh, intimate and small and feel not small in a bad way, but just feels very sort of compact in its storytelling. Um, and I just wonder whether or not that was another hill it had to climb in terms of just sort of, you know, the intimacy of this movie and the fact that it, you know, has one male character. I mean, that for what that's worth, um, you know, it's, it, it's, it's, it's a really lovely movie, but I also just wonder like, could this have ever really broken out? I don't know. I think this movie needed Rosie O'Donnell in the Kathy Jimmy role. Um, not because okay. I think Kathy and Jimmy's bad, but because at that time, if Rosie O'Donnell was in a thing, yeah, people were, yeah. and of course yeah. she works with with uh, Nora Ephron the very yeah, next the year next in movie. Yeah. in Seattle. Yeah. So like there, it, when she was in a thing, people would be like, "Whoa, you got to check, you got to check this out for this lady in this sure. minor supporting part." So yeah, I think that's that's my that's my fix to get people to see this well, movie. Well, I, I think that it's so in terms of like the production, which I do think is a little interesting. Um, so the films at Columbia Pictures is put in turnaround in 1990. So. You know, this movie had been around for a little while. The script had been around. And Efron asked John Peters if he read the script. And he answered, I've made over 60 movies. I don't have to read a script to know whether it works or not. What a time. I mean, it's just like everything about it. Like everything about its production and like the turnaround and the way. I don't know what the marketing was like, but it probably wasn't great. It just kind of screams to me like. I think it. I want to say, like, it's hard to sell a movie about mothers and daughters um, in an industry that especially back then was like, mm, do women like movies? Mm? Like, I I mean, there's terms of endearment, but I think that was probably, right. you know, you had Shirley MacLaine and Jack Nicholson and yep. James L. Brooks, who could, like, do no wrong at that time. I think that was yep. maybe an easier push to get, like, marketing and get people paying attention, but yeah, this has so many hills to climb on top of being hmm, women. Hmm? That's a that this is a, a perpetual thing with my with us doing nineteen ninety two with me. It's like all so many like 
There's so many of these movies that are framed through a guy's perspective, even if they don't particularly need to be. And like, I did a I did a number of 1999 episodes when when this podcast was about that year, and uh, you know it's not like that year was significantly better, but it did feel like there was slightly more interest yeah. in like what yeah. the point of view of someone who is not a man would be. And this year is just very much like even a movie like Basic Instinct, which I really enjoy, is framed through Michael Douglas's point of view. Yep even though he's far from the most interesting character in that movie. So it's, it is this, yeah, like, it's, it, it is, it is very, it's been a very weird and toxic experience sometimes. I'm like, sorry. like I'm re-enmeshing myself in the world of 1992. Don't yeah, apologize, it, Phil. It's Hollywood's no, I, fault. I, well, that's true. Um, I, I guess I just, it, it is, I don't disagree with you that there are so few films told from a female perspective. I mean, we did Poison Ivy, which, mm-hmm. you know, was great. from a female perspective. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. I uh, love but, it. But it is it is interesting that this film, which feels very sort of um I mean it's written directed by a woman. It's mostly female characters. Um it, it does it felt kind of dumped. I'll tell you, I saw this in the theater. So my stepmom told me to see this movie. She covered my eyes during the condom sequence, um, <laughs> which I remember vividly. Um and, and to the point where it's just like, I don't know, what, like I, I, I was 12. I'm sure I knew what was happening, but it doesn't matter. Um, but I just remember seeing this movie and just feeling like I didn't really get it. Um, and that's the only other time that I've watched this film up until doing it, uh, watching it the other day. Um, this movie's lovely. This movie's really smart. Um, this movie, I, I, I love the relationship between the two sisters, um, between Gabby Hoffman and, and Smith Mathis. Gabby Hoffman, who's so good in this perfect perfect little sister energy like just such a natural at it well you have sisters so i imagine this spoke to you in that regard as well oh yeah and i think the part that like i think i not i think i mean Nora afron had spoken before about how like the fact that it was largely that it was so significant the sister relationship was so significant and it was part of her and delia's pull to it and the like mother working in the entertainment and the question of like ownership of material but yeah the sister thing is so spot on how sometimes you're like best friends sometimes you're protecting each other and then sometimes the little sister is like a real fucking nag (laughs) opal is such a good little sister name too like yes. I just I uh well, just quick poll of the pot. Should I have another kid and name her yes, Opal? For sure. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, great. One hundred percent. Yeah. Great. I'm glad. Yeah. I'll just tell Libby that you guys think we should. She'll be <laughs> <I'm> sure <laughs> Libby will be on board. <laughs> but Opal's a great name. She's great in this movie. She's then the she's cast again in uh, Sleepless in Seattle, and she's great in that as well. Um, she's got this old soul energy. That's just incredible. Um, it's so precocious. Yes, yes, yes. She's she's wonderful. Uh, I and, and Samantha Mathis, by the way, great in this movie. Um, I think she's wonderful in this film. I mean, again, playing a misanthropic teen is you know what it is. She's got some real Claire Danes energy in this movie. Yes, like I think the very first. I'm trying to remember. I feel like the very first shot when I first saw this movie, I was like. I was like, wait, I thought, wait, Claire Danes is in this? 
No, it's yeah. Samantha Mathis. It's, I mean, it's got a real My So-Called Life vibe, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, for sure. But she's great, and it doesn't feel trite. It doesn't feel, you know, I, she feels believable. She feels lived in. Um, and, and part of that is just the fact that the way it's written, the way it's directed, and the way that it's acted, but also just... Like, I think about the scene that really kind of, there's many scenes in the movie that I love, but the scene when she is pretending to be her mom and Dottie overhears her kind of like doing a whole bit and sort of tearing her apart. And then that fight that they have just felt so real. I love that scene so much. And I love, for so many reasons, like, I think one of the big things is like it exemplifies part of, this entire arc of the movie where you sympathize with both characters in a way that like I think maybe if I were younger or maybe if it were another screenwriter the whole time I would have been like yes Erica's right her mom is a terrible mom Mm -hmm. like she has every right to be an angsty little teen and you're kind of like yes but then you're also like oh she's an angsty teen and like the mom is right like she doesn't have she's all on her she's on her own being a mother is hard and like who is this little brat to like tear me apart but I love the way that she sets that scene up where it's the like one she just plants the camera in the hallway and it's the one long shot and you get her like you get Julie Kavner like rehearsing her argument with Jan Aykroyd and then coming back into the hall and like like screaming some variation of it yeah and Gabby and Gabby Opal Hoffman. being like, yeah, mom's right. <laughs> Sorry, Eric. Such a little sister. <laughs> Initially being mad and then being like, she's right, you know. Yeah. It's, oh, it's, it's so it is it is a great, I mean, the, 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 the locked off camera, the bedrooms of the kids, and just the way it all kind of is orchestrated uh, is fantastic. And, and, and the line that hit me, and it sort of underlines what you're saying, Carrie, is when she's like, I don't have anyone to help me. Like, there, there's... You you don't think of Dottie as she's so strong and she's so well performed and so well written, but like what's wonderful about that scene, and it's like, you know, as as I'm sure we all know, great writing is when both people in the scene come from a strong place, right? So both people can be right in an argument, and both of them are right, which is that Erica feels, you know, unloved for lack of a better way of putting it. And Dottie is just like, but don't I get to have any sort of life? Like, do, am I not allowed to find happiness myself? Like, that's a that's just a great place to be in when you're when you're writing. I um, yeah. uh, I, I love Samantha Mathis in this movie. I there aren't a lot of reviews of this movie extant, so I just yeah. dug around on Letterboxd, and she seems to be the performance people bounce off the most. Um, a lot of people really don't like her. I was that girl at 15. Like that was just the kind of, the kind of girl I was like just sort of weird and awkward and like occasionally um, hitting, like hitting on the, hitting on boys and not knowing what I was doing and all of those things. And like, yeah. Also, she's obviously part of the best adaptation of little women's, which everyone agrees. So, um, Nope. Yeah. Do not agree. (laughs) She is good in that movie though. 
I, I like that Little Women, but I mean, don't don't. This, this me. is this is an aside. I don't get Greta Gerwig. I like Greta Gerwig. As movies. I wear my I shirt, like, I like both. I like both of her movies a lot. I have yet to really connect with them. Mm. And you should listen to uh, Carrie and I talk about Reds and Little Women. We have a whole listen, episode where say, we talk about that. So listen. we've already had the like Little Women. Yeah, we don't need to do it again. I don't. We don't need to. You know, I we, wasn't we, there, we, so now we need to do it all over again. <laughs> Catherine Hepburn. I, I do think that Samantha Mathis in the ninety. Four ninety five Little Women plays 94. the mm-hmm. older version of, of Amy. Amy. Yeah, um, you know because she obviously is a grown up version of uh, Kirsten Dunst because they look so yes. similar. Um, and and I would argue is given very little to do in that movie. She's the worst. She is the worst part. <laughs> She's of that. the worst. And I like I like I I like her generally as an actor. I think that that movie kind of strands her. I do think that like that's just the problem with grown up Amy. Is grown up Amy is like the book itself doesn't know what to do with her. And I think. Sure. Greta Gerwig's solve for that is like one of the smarter things about Little Women, which is just like we're gonna buy that Florence Pugh is twelve. I'm just gonna tell you what's happening. It's a crazy it's scene be, when she's surrounded by children. It's gonna be like we're in a stage musical, and you're <laughs> just gonna go with it, and we do. I, yeah. you know, it is interesting because I feel like Samantha Mathis, who this is a performance that I feel like people talk about you know, of hers. I feel like she's in American psycho as well. Um, she's in, um, is she in pump up the volume? Am I making that up? I know that she's in, hold on. I'm just pulling up her, her uh, filmography here. Um, she's in super Mario brothers. She obviously plays princess Daisy. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> That movie's crazy. Um, she's also a voice in Fern Gully. So when we cover Fern Gully, we can talk about her again. Uh, she is in Pop Up the Volume. I'm not crazy. Um, she's in How to Make an American Quilt. I think you like that movie, right, Emily? I feel like we've talked about that movie. I feel like I do. I don't remember it at all, but I'm, okay. I'm sure. Like, I know I've seen it, and it was about women, and I saw it in yeah, 1995, yeah. so probably. And she's, you know, she's in The American President. She's in Broken Arrow. Like, she's in stuff. It's not as though, like, she disappears, but I feel like people don't really know what to do with her unfortunately it's a bummer i mean she really was talented. she was great in the tv show the strain <laughs> she's in the strain <laughs> she's in the strain oh wow she plays like a, a city council member who gets corrupted by vampires it's amazing. <laughs> she's also in an episode of lost where she plays olivia goodspeed i don't know what that is but i mean that's that's uh that's a freaking lost name if ever i've heard one. <laughs> But I, I, I will say that, um, and I, I texted Carrie this as I was watching it. I think that Carly Simon somehow slipping the word pumpernickel into a lyric is <laughs> it's incredible. I think we need more like adult contemporary scores for I, I movies. Agree. I agree. Like kind of a little bit, a little bit overwrought, mm-hmm. a little bit like mm, mm-hmm. not all of this works. But like I don't yeah. I'm sorry. I like I love what Grizzly Bear did with scoring past yeah, lives. Past lives yeah. But like that's what I need I don't need some like indie band doing like an instrumental score for an A twenty four movie. I need like Cheryl Crow writing like ten different songs to like sing throughout the movie that are like I some mean, are I'll, good, I'll... some are like oh you are going to get uh, Casey Musgraves being uh, the songs for Bambi. So you have that to look forward to. Oh, that's yeah. <laughs> Love Casey. I, I think, uh, I think that Cheryl Crow's a good pull. 
I think I Alanis do. Morissette should yes. do the songs for yes. uh, for an MCU movie. I think that the MCU <laughs> could take this turn. Yeah, but I we it does feel like this was definitely an '80s thing that kind of bled over a little bit into the top of the '90s. Um, where like you could go to a Carly Simon and say, "Can you just write five songs about uh, being a single mom?" And she's like, "Yeah, can I write about pumpernickel?" And they're like, "Yeah, sure." I mean, it's so emblematic of like that group of yes um, creators. Like I was gonna say, it's so Mike Nichols core. It like is. it is classic Mike I mean, Nichols girl. move, yeah, working I mean, girl. Yeah. Like. Yeah. But I like that's the other thing too. I love that group in the eighties and nineties where it's like Nichols, Efron, Beatty, Carly Simon's there, like Jack Nicholson. Like there's all this like there's a sort of core collective that like all kind of hang out together and work together and like you have Nora Efron stealing not stealing, but like just doing things that Mike Nichols does because like he taught her how to do that. And it works on his movies, like Mike Nichols just being like, what if I did this, that, what if I took Elaine May and was like, talk to Nora Ephron and tell her how to write a screenplay. You know, the, the Harry Connick Jr. for When Harry Met Sally, right? Like it it, it is this sort of, there's this time where, as you said, you could get an adult contemporary artist who will either do a bunch of covers or do some original songs and, and just, it's a vibe. And it's a it's a really lovely, warm kind of um, inviting vibe, and we don't do it anymore. Has there has this been replaced by music licensing pop songs? Obviously, all of this is happening contemporaneously. Sure. Like there there sure. are there are a lot of movies that are licensing pop songs at this time, but now it feels like we ha- that has taken over to a degree. I think that's absolutely true. I I mean I know that I can't think of them off the top of my head, but there are definitely artists today that get in bed with a filmmaker and not just on an uh, instrumental perspective, but like, am I, am I crazy that there isn't like someone that's done this recently? I just feel Um, like all of my recent, like all of the examples I could pull off the top of my head are like instrumental. No, it's, it's true. I mean, it's mostly. There's there's definitely like the group that did music for everything, everywhere at once did the post credits song with David Byrne and Mitski. And it's like, uh, you get that's, like one song. You get that. You get one song. Yeah. yeah. Um, by the way, I just looked up who the number one adult contemporary artist in the oh, country is, is and was truly shocked. The number one song on adult contemporary radio is Flowers by Miley Cyrus. I would not have no. predicted that. Number two is Antihero by Taylor Swift. There is adult contemporary no, is like yeah, gone. Now. That's not like, a thing. Yeah. I mean, I'm genuinely heartbroken. Raised on VH1, seven a.m. countdown. Where did like like, where did Sarah McLaughlin go? Like you know what I mean? Probably back to Canada. I don't know. You would know more than I would, Phil. She never left Canada. Listen, she comes here sometimes. (laughs) I just to to your point though, you had sort of this lane that existed in the eighties and nineties of sort of real adult contemporary. And I think Cheryl Crow's a great pull because I do feel like she's someone who I bet you could convince her to give you three or four songs if you, you know. Let Amy Mann make her fucking oh, God, Girl yes. Interrupted musical. Oh, God. Don't even, yeah. I mean, Amy, I get, is that the closest? Is Magnolia the closest we're talking about here? I mean, it might Maybe. be. Probably. Well, 
I don't really think any, I'm looking at the top 20 or what, I don't think any of these people are like Ed Sheeran's the one where I'm like, he's, he's kind of the vibe I'm looking for, but yeah, he's a little bit too pop. I think the thing is like, like pop has consumed adult contemporary like this, in this way that they've blended into each other, but I'm going to get back into it. I, I wanted to ask you guys, because uh, as, as I hit play on this film, and, and at the beginning of this movie, we're, we're in sort of a, a, a Macy's cosmetics counter, even though it's spoiler shot in Toronto. Um, but it's a, what? a Macy's. Yeah, you lied to. I'm sorry. Do they even have uh, Macy's in Canada? We didn't, actually. They just picked wow. a department store and turned it into a Macy's. Uh, the magic of the movies, my We ass. had the Bay, Hudson's Bay Company. Um, so... Yeah, Emily's face perfect. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. It's a real thing. Um, so she's doing kind of like stand up at this cosmetics counter, right? Like she's got a sort of a crowd of women, and she's doing makeup, and she's, you know, doing a bit. She's got a great line where she's like, "Men are gathering like oxen to the waterhole." This <laughs> is like incredible. But as she was doing this stuff, I, I, and and forgive me if this is too obvious, but like the Maisel thing did kind of hit me a little bit too, in terms of just this female comedian um, and, and sort of recognizing that you're funny um, in a sort of everyday sense and sort of weaponizing that and wanting to turn that into something. Did you guys see any shades of Maisel outside of the fact that it's a female comedian? I mean, I think my thing is that it was, less like stumbling into oh I'm funny I can make a career out of this and more like it had always seemed to me watching it like she wanted to make a career out of it for a very long time but was kind of like well this is as best like this is as much as I'm gonna be able to do that like I'm just gonna incorporate that into my real job because I unfortunately have children (laughs) so I can't right Um, right 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 that's fair but I don't know. I don't know. I gotta say, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel did not once occur to me while watching this. So, okay. yeah. I, I like, I obviously, but I'm not like Maisel pilled, you know? I, I think that shows. I'm fun, half Maisel pilled. I really yeah. loved the first three seasons and then I dropped off at season four. And, and I guess people are telling me I need to watch the last season. Season, well. end of season three, the majority of season four, I was like, well, I'm invested. So I'm just going to watch it, even though it's like, not very good last episode i think the last episode of season four maybe last two but definitely the last one of season four is like night and day like Mm. really good and then i really i really loved what they did with season five okay i like that they played around with the timeline and they were like here's the fallout of being super super famous because they're like telling you that mitch does succeed and she is like a legendary comedian i don't know it's also like i spent the last fucking like three years mucking around in the elaine may shit and so like there are a lot of a lot of overlaps where i was like oh, somebody's talking about this good i'm not crazy for doing this yeah i i mean it, it's I, I really do love the first three seasons i need to go back because i do want to see how it ends um, my roommate's an enormous fan of it, so I do need to. to I do want to see how it ends. But I, 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 I guess the the other question I had for you guys was on the the comedy side of things. Um, movies about stand up comedians have a very sort of steep hill to climb, right? Which is that the jokes have to be believably funny that you could 
by this person as a comedian, right? And what I appreciated about this movie was that, I mean, the jokes are funny, don't get me wrong, but they're also a little bit awkward and a little bit human and her delivery isn't really kind of as sharp as you would necessarily expect. Like she feels like a real human being and that messiness and that awkwardness I found really endearing and I feel like you don't see that in stuff of this nature. Does that make sense? Yeah. I, like she's not trained yet. Right. That's yeah, 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 yeah. I uh I think that what works in this movie is I don't love the jokes. I think some of them are fine. I, I laughed at a couple of them, but like I get why the people in the movie do. Like I, I believe right. that the people in the movie like these right. jokes and that makes the movie work. And I I can't even explain how she did that. I, I, I do think it is because she's working her way up, you know, the, sure. the character, which makes it. So by the time she's really killing it, you see less and less of her comedy, which is a smart call. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, yeah. it, it works well enough, right? Like I buy the jokes, could start a career and could, you know what I mean? Because I imagine that at the time she was sort of groundbreaking in terms of what she was talking about and female comedian and this, that, and whatever. Um, the Dan Aykroyd component of this movie. Um, Hot. Oh, okay. That yeah. <laughs> uh, I, when I he's Dan eating Aykroyd. paper? Yeah. Hot? Listen, I like a man with some quirks. I like, this is another thing that people on, on Letterboxd were like, he, he's like totally unbelievable as a character, but he's like based on a real guy. He's so believable. Yeah. They're like, there are weirdos fucking everywhere. I don't, I don't find the eating paper hot, but I find it like endearing. Yes. Yes. Like when I see that scene, I always like smile. I'm like, that's my boy. Yeah. It's like, yeah, I don't want to date the moss, you know, not, but I do, I I do find him very endearing. I, don't I think even know we're. To, I don't know what to do with this. I think we're supposed to like find him kind of weird and gross, but like the movie has affection for him. The daughters don't, but the movie itself is yeah. like this guy's kind of a fun weirdo. He's. I don't mean to suggest that Dan Aykroyd is unappealing. That's not what I'm saying. Because uh, first of all, I also did not know that Carrie Fisher was married to him, or that I mean that they had, they were together for like many years. Um, Another so weirdo. I could. Phil, I could take you on like a wild like tangent about that insane relationship and I will spare you. But I gotta like, tell you, our listeners are now they're leaning in, Carrie. It, it's Let's just it. bizarre. It's bizarre. Well, didn't they like she was she was like fucking Paul Simon. Yes. They were like on again, off again. And then That's she's correct. like she's friends with Dan Aykroyd because she's always hanging around the SNL cast. Mm-hmm. And then on Blues Brothers, I think they were like high as fuck. And they were like, let's get married. <laughs> While she was still, I think like, I think it was like a, she was maybe like about to get married to Paul Simon. And then like they broke up and then they were going to get back to get like one of those weird things. And then she was like, actually, I don't want to be married to Dan Aykroyd. I want to be married to Paul Simon. And then it's like, mm, I don't really think I want to be married to Paul Simon. Or married at all. Married at all. Carrie Fisher had a real i mean the 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 love life of carrie fisher is a is a, a roller coaster to say the least but the dan Aykroyd thing was just something i didn't know about but yeah i i love i love carrie fisher in this movie sure i think sure. she's like she's playing a very specific character in a very fun way i do feel like this is a period of time where 
if you want your like comedy to be taken seriously, you've got to have Dan Aykroyd and or Carrie Fisher in a minor supporting part. Like I, I always forget that Dan Aykroyd got a supporting actor nomination for driving Miss Daisy. And like, he's, he's totally fine in that movie. It's just like, yeah, we've got to have one of these two actors and that's how we know we're making a good comedy. And this feels like the tail end of that. The, the the 89 Best Supporting Actor nomination is crazy. We, we talked about it on our 89 Patreon. I mean, he beat Danny Aiello in Do the Right Thing. I mean, like, oh, sorry. No, who won that year? Danny Aiello didn't win, but he... Uh, it was, um yeah, it was, uh gosh, it was a very weird year. Uh, now I'm just looking at Dan Aykroyd. 89 was, who won that year is what I'm trying to remember. Yeah, I, I know. Um, oh, he's, oh, God. Dan Dan Aykroyd and my girl is just classic. I mean, oh, right, he was in that. Chaplin. He, was, he is a Chaplin. He yeah, plays what's his face about. in Chaplin. Yeah. Um, no, nineteen. Uh, I'm looking it up right now. It's uh, Denzel, 19... isn't it? Denzel. It is Denzel. Yeah. It's Denzel for for Glory, um, which is a good win. I'm I'm not. It's a good like win. But the other that. nominations: Martin Landau for Crimes and Misdemeanors, Marlon Brando for A Dry White Season, Dan Aykroyd for Driving Miss Daisy, <laughs> and Danny Aiello for Do the Right Thing. Which is which one sticks out, guys? That is a weird year. <laughs> Carrie, uh, original SNL cast. Who do you most want to like hang out with for a night? Oh, that's like, a good you question. Have to hang out with them all the time. You just like are gonna go have a fun night with them and then never have to see them again. <laughs> well, Gilda. It's Gilda, but I wouldn't want to never hang out with her again. Okay, all that's right. Fair. Yeah, you can continue. Or Jane. Out as, I feel yeah. like Jane and I oh, would Jane be. Jane would be. A, she'd be a great hang. Yeah. Jane Curtin, Jane Curtin, fucking cool, underrated. Absolutely, that's underrated. Right that is that's that's great. Yeah, I I, I mean, the the thing about um the guys around that time, uh, super toxic. Not not great guy. What? <laughs> what? Listen, I know Bill Murray is like super problematic. I yeah. He is like he is my deeply problematic fave. Like. The guy that I'm like, oh, I got, I gotta uncouple from you in my brain. Like, I really gotta, not like to be cancel culture, but I'm like, mm, I can't keep. You keep really being like an awful guy, and I keep yeah. being like, but I like you. It's and my now he's dating Kalist. I like that the Daily Mail links him with anybody he like is spotted with. Like two months ago, they were like. He's dating Jeannie Berlin. No, he's just like friends with her. But like, uh, Jeannie please... Berlin, by the way, just uh, amazing. In uh, you hurt my feelings. Everyone needs to see that movie. I saw. I saw you hurt. I saw you hurt my feelings with Phil, and when Jeannie Berlin popped up, people applauded, and <laughs> she I was, was in a all... Marvel yeah. movie. <laughs> As they should. When that happened, I literally was like, "Oh my god, is Carrie here?" <laughs> Uh, when I saw you hurt my feelings, like I, it was in a movie theater where like no, like no one ever gets the assigned seating right. It's all like the elders of the Upper West Side, and so this woman, sit, like this like seventy year old woman, sits down right next to me. Like there are plenty of seats. Like she could have put a space between us, um, but I'm like, this is fine. I don't care. So she strikes up conversation with me when the movie ends. I'm like living. I'm like, yes, this is great. I love talking movies with with my oh, elders. Please. I love it. And she's like, Jeannie Berlin. Oh, 
I remember her for the from the Grodin movie. She's got to be what ninety? How'd she get this role? And I was like, first of all, we don't age shame. She is absolutely not ninety. But then the second thing is, I'm not going to disrespect my sure. elders. Sure. I'm not going to correct her. I'm just going to be like, yeah. she was great. <laughs> yeah, I love her in the Heartbreak Kid. Yeah, yeah. The Grodin I, movie is a great way of describing the it. Gro- I want, the Chuck Grodin movie. I want to be an old lady who's just like, <laughs> I think that lady's old. And just like, I that's... cannot wait. <laughs> I see my, I saw my future in this woman. And I was like, oh, I'm so excited. If I, I'm not uh... lost to a water war, oh, I cannot wait. <laughs> <laughs> It's incredible. Uh, speaking of old ladies, um, uh, oh my god, Ben Stiller's mom is in this movie. Estelle Harris. Yes, Estelle Harris. Yeah. Right. Ben Stiller's mom's Anne Mira. Oh, I'm sorry. My bad. Wow. Phil. Doesn't she play? Wait, am I making? Oh, it's because his dad was her husband in Seinfeld. That's why my brain was like... They weren't actually married, Phil. Sometimes things my that happen just... on TV and movies oh, don't Okay, yeah. okay. So um, you alluded to this at the top, Emily. It's worth talking about. Um, the the comedian friends of Dottie in this movie. Um, not great. Bad comedians. Not Not funny. Now, I know that's part of it, but also, like, sometimes not funny is funny, and these are just not funny. I gotta ask. It's it's time for Emily's lesbian corner. I gotta yes. ask. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are are Mia and Lynn? I think are they? Are they? I think they, they might be. I think they are. It feels that way. Who's Lynn? Wait, Mia's the one who teaches them about Betty and Veronica. Lynn yes. is the blonde from Goodfellas. <laughs> yes. I don't right? remember even. I don't even remember Lynn. She. So they're they basically yeah, every she's... time every time that they're in, Mia's in a scene. There's also this other woman there. And they seem kind of joint at the hip, but the movie never clarifies that they're a couple. But like this, it's a very like early nineties. Oh, these two are always together. They're they must be. Are they friends. something? Are they good very friends? Close friends. <laughs> um, I think uh, I think Nora Ephron should uh, have should issue a press statement from Beyond the Grave to just be like, hey, these two are lesbians. <laughs> But it's like, yeah. it is like, the thing about it is, it is like a very accurate portrayal of like the lesbians you let your kids hang out with. They're just like kind totally. of fun and like mm-hmm. they like to play mystery date. And so that, I do think that we're like supposed to like get that they're together. But I don't know that people in 92 would have necessarily gotten that they were together. Yeah. I mean, they're in every scene together. They have an energy to your point, Emily, where it's like there's something that they seem like more than friends. Um, I really liked both those performances, Mia in particular. Here's a question for you guys: This Betty Veronica theory that Mia has is that a, is that an accurate theory? As as women, do you feel like you fall into a Betty or Veronica camp? I mean, some days I'm, I'm Betty, some days I'm Veronica. You know, I, <laughs> I can't basically remember Mia's who. whole theory is is that essentially like you're you fall into one or the other, which is like you're either the beta or the alpha. I guess is ultimately what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, or I guess it's, I can't remember, like, who, like, what the personality traits of, like, Betty and Veronica are, but it's, it's essentially, like, you're either the Mary or the Rhoda, right? Yeah. You're... Uh, yes, yes. It's a spectrum. 
It's just that nothing is a binary. It's a spectrum. You know, there's, yeah. there's, there's Betty, there's Veronica, but there's also like fucking Lil Jinx. And like, maybe you're a Lil Jinx, you know? I don't uh, know what that is. <laughs> we're, we're going deep on Archie Comics lore, Phil. This is one of those things Who's I Lil know a lot Jinx? about. Lil Jinx is like this character that was in like side stories and a lot of Archie comics. Um, uh-huh. She's like tiny and kind of angry and like gets into oh, trouble Oh, I'm Lil Jinx for sure. Oh, I'm Lil yeah. Jinx. <laughs> Yeah. Harry's definitely little jinx. <laughs> Just <laughs> angry, shaking her fist at the sky all the time. Yeah, I mean, I, I I guess it's all kind of called back at the end when Erica decides she wants to change her name to Veronica. <laughs> I don't know. It's it's a weird I, I'm not sure that, that totally works, but whatever. The, I mean I think I think it works for the idea of they're creating this fictional character who is an aspirational sure. example of who she wants to be. And she's sure. decided she wants to be a Veronica and sort of the, the idea of a Veronica is that she goes out and gets what she wants and, and a Betty like waits around for what she thinks she deserves. And it, it's sort of a, I feel like it's sort of putting a capstone on Erica's journey of like becoming her own person because sure. One sure. thing we haven't mentioned at all that I really like about this movie is there's dueling narration. There's yes. dueling voiceover. Like the Love story, that. it's not even that the story's different. It's not like it's not like a Rashomon thing. It is very much like they have different emotional perspectives on what's mm-hmm. happening on screen, and it's handled really well. Um, yeah, I, I loved that element of it. And actually, I think I think this is a reason the title's bad. The title of the book was "This Is Your Life," and I yeah. think that's a better title. I think yeah. that's a better title. What's okay. insane is that I, so I've never read the book. And before this podcast, I was like, maybe I'll see if I can like get the book at the library real quick or something like, or yeah. if it's an ebook, um, they changed the title. It's now like new printings of it say, <sighs> this is my life previously, like on the cover underneath in smaller letters previously published as this is your that's life so weird. made into the hit Nora Ephron movie. And I'm like, hit. I mean, that's a choice. I'm not sure I've ever seen that before. I know. Retroactively like, changing the title. I mean, I'm sure Meg Willitzer's like, fine, I don't care, whatever, do what you want to do. My fa- my favorite, I'm going to change a thing. This is totally beside the point, but mm-hmm. Jurassic Park turned 30 recently, so I've been thinking about this. Yeah. The Lost World book sequel. Um, Ian Malcolm dies in Jurassic Park, and then the sequel, The Lost World, is just like, he didn't actually die. He's alive now because he didn't die in the movie, and he's going to yep. be the lead of the new movie. So, <laughs> It's crazy. It's that, that, that is one of those like weird situations where they're just like, yeah, we couldn't get any of the other cast, but Goldblum's back, so he better be in the book. More, uh, more authors should have that kind of brazen confidence to just be sure. like, listen, this character comes with dead, money, boatloads yeah. of money. <laughs> I feel like let's give Franzen a call. Tell him you got to, yeah. you got to do yeah. this for yeah. corrections too. I... <laughs> more corrections. Yeah. Further I, um... corrections. <laughs> There is a line that Dottie has that I loved where um, she's going to L.A. and she tells the kids not to write her letters and says, letter writing is ridiculous. Nothing ever arrives within a week and someone else ends up with what you should have, a record of your life, which is a great thing that is then kind of called back later with the dad, which is great. That is like a Nora Ephron line if I've ever heard one. Yeah, it's amazing. It's, it's like, no one talks like this, but I wish we did. I w- 
but it's also it's no one talks like that except like it does call to mind the whole like everything is copy thing that her sure. her mom told her and and Delia being like like I think that thread comes out a lot in this movie where it's like I mean in the obvious sense of like Dottie taking things that um her, that her kids say and then them calling it out and, be, and she's being like well all comedians use their own life and then yeah the whole letter writing thing like own own your story don't tell it to me write it down in a journal <laughs> I yeah i love that, that i think the genius of an Efron is i think people do say things like that they're just surrounded by so much other stuff the genius mm-hmm. of an Efron is hearing a thing like that or thinking of a thing like that off something someone else said or saying a thing and then being like that was really smart i should remember that and like filing that away it's sort of this like magpie approach to real life where you're just like plucking things because real life is like the great thing about movies is they're you know taking the pieces of real life that we wish were happening to us all the time and i think Nora efron at her best is really skillful at plucking out things that feel plausible because you've heard them before they've just been surrounded by so much other crap and then making them the center yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, that, that is her, you know, that was her superpower, but like, it is, it is amazing to think of a person that can, that has the ability to kind of laser in on these things in life and understand why they're worth unpacking or why they're worth highlighting. And yeah, I guess, I guess, I don't know. I mean, as a writer, all three of us, I imagine we're constantly looking at the world around us and and finding inspiration wherever we find it. But like, there is something about Nora's kind of, it's almost an and maybe this is a bad illusion, but like it's a little Cameron Crowey. It's certainly James L. Brooksy in terms of just kind of understanding those weird little human moments and 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 just sort of I don't know, really kind of highlighting them. It's it's really beautiful, and that line to me feels like Cameron Crowe definitely works similarly, right? In the sense of the the man is rife with. Um, sort of catchphrasey things that he thinks you know all sound good and half of them are and half of them are not but this feels kind of in that same thing right where it's like giving you little nuggets of wisdom I guess is basically the worst and I think the other thing too and I never would have thought to like compare her to Cameron Crowe I don't know why but that like as soon as you did my mind in, in like instantly said my mind instantly went, oh, well, they're so similar because their touchstones are romantic comedies, reporting, but also in screenwriting, romantic comedies of like the 40s and 50s. They're like trying to write a Billy Wilder movie constantly. (laughs) And I think I think there is there is that thing of like when you are a reporter and you're talking to someone, you hear the quote, you're like, this is the quote. And you I always just write it down and I put good quote because I'm always like taking notes and it's uh it, it, there is that there is that quality to their writing and there's that quality to like david simon's writing you can kind of tell when there's a journalist who's writing a script because everything sounds like a good quote often to distraction um <laughs> yes yeah it's you know it's funny I, I didn't even really make the connection the 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 Nora Ephron cameron crow um journalistic component but like that's very much there and and yeah i mean did nora ever do i mean is hanging up 
the most autobiographical? Like, does she ha- did she have an autobiographical movie, or is it all kind of just I, subtextual? I think it's a lot of subtextual, but like hanging up, hanging up was based on Delia's book, and that was like a whole thing where. <laughs> I mean, she ultimately co-wrote it with her, but I think it says a lot that she, neither of them directed it and let Diane Keaton do a batshit job. I mean, that there are choices made in that movie that are like, cool, we're just going to get some shots of walls. Okay. <laughs> but, like, it is a very... I think that's the closest you're ever going to get, and it is pretty thinly veiled autobiography. I was going to... Like, gonna... Yeah. I was going to joking. I was going to jokingly say bewitched, but looking at <laughs> looking at her filmography, I actually do think Julie and Julia is kind of autobiographical in the sense of like sure. a you know I think she sees a lot of herself in in both women. You know, Julia Child as a groundbreaking pioneer in this field that wasn't very welcoming to women, and then also you know uh, uh, Julie being this person who's like looking at people and trying to like live her life through them. I feel like Nora Ephron had. You know, you look at her work, she's constantly feeling both sides of that equation, which I think is why her work speaks to so many people, but also women specifically, because there is that feeling of, oh, my goodness, I'm I'm trying to forge a new path. Also, I feel, you know, like I'm watching other people and like mm-hmm. trying to follow them in this weird way. For sure. Yeah, I, I absolutely see that. I, I feel like. But then it's bewitched. Bewitched is yeah. Bewitched is definitely the one that that's the one that I think of. Yeah, that movie. By the way, like I don't hate Bewitched. I don't think it's a great movie by any means, but I also don't really know why everyone thinks it's like a total turd. I think there's some weird, fun stuff in it. I think it's like the time of it. Like I think it just came out in a weird time. I also think like I mean, didn't they try to do a lot of different like weird. Yeah. like existing like they didn't know how to handle existing ip very well in like 2005 i think she was a hired gun on it like sure. set up it's... to fail in a lot of different ways but i don't know i watched it a couple years ago and i was like this is not yeah i was like this is not nearly as bad as i remember nicole it is being. adorable in it she's so charming and so watchable and like the concept of it kind of makes your head hurt because you're like wait she's a witch but she's in a show version like it's all just it's it's sweaty at best in terms of how it's like twisting itself into pretzels but like if you can get over that the movie's actually fun i think it was also like when they didn't know what to do with will ferrell or they were like he wants to be an actor but like he doesn't want it he wants to do less like old school but not quite what was that one he did like stranger than fiction yep 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 and then the woody allen movie yeah oh like a weird time and I, oh, I don't know maybe it was also like I feel like I remember reading a lot of reviews where they were like we didn't we don't know how to t- understand Nicole Kidman in a comedy absolutely no one knew what to do with that she's um yeah there, there's a thing about the thing about her comedic persona is it's not naturally conducive to like a star vehicle you know her comedic yeah. persona is so arch and strange and like kind of dark and that's not a uh, Nora. I mean, Nora Ephron can obviously do that kind of character, but that's not a Nora Ephron movie that was given a budget of over a hundred million or whatever. Yeah, spent on Bewitched. It's uh, yeah. It's also like it's a movie that you can feel the development hell like oh like, yeah. clinging off of it. Yeah. You know? It's also like weirdly inside baseball. 
like half hmm. that movie is like inside Hollywood, you know, making a TV show. It, all of it, you're just sort of like, who's this movie for? Is really kind of what you find yourself thinking about over and over again. But speaking yeah. of speaking of Woody Allen, the Wikipedia page for Nora Ephron yeah, and her feature film says that when Harry Metzeli is adapted from Annie Hall, like what which is fucking crazy in the sense of like we all have our influences i guess but i when i when i saw that i i it's the first time that i've ever looked at a wikipedia page and actually was like i think i have to make a complaint i think i have to actually somehow edit that out because that's insane there's no citation either i think that of course uh, not. Uh, i think citation needed wikipedia and if you are listening to this podcast Ooh. go fix that right now go it's fix crazy. it yeah, I mean, I remember re- I, I rem- because a lot of reviews at the time were like, "Oh, she's making a Woody Allen a Woody movie." Allen. Yeah, yeah. But, but it's also like just to be, uh, you know, not to be, but it's also not Annie Hall, like story wise. No. Like it's it's just not even remotely close. It has it has kind of a similar structure, but then again, so does fucking Five Hundred Days of Summer, and like nobody yes. would call that an Annie Hall sure. or when Harry Met Sally adaptation. Yes crazy they're both Um, movies that involve romance and time which i guess i don't know so there you go uh i i think that the um we talked about it a little bit but uh already but the the scene the the big kind of fight scene that they have is fantastic but it also kind of launches the film into its third act which the fact that this movie's climax is about two little Greek, two sisters getting on a train to meet their uninterested in them father and, and realizing that they they have it really great with their mom. Um, but it is, the dad is the worst. Like he's just so unappealing as a human. It's incredible. But he's not like, this is the thing. Yeah. The, the third, yeah, the third act has never worked great for me yeah but i realized watching it this time where i was like there are so many instances in it where yes he's unappealing Mm -hmm. he could have been like the big bad yep and he's just kind of like a dull unappealing and the one thing i love about it the other thing is like she could have made a choice to make his new wife like pissed or just like another monster and She's so she's so warm and like a nice human being. And Caroline yeah. Aaron, Caroline Aaron, great bit player. Yes. Like great, great supporting great. role. Yeah. Wonderful like, in this little part. She's kind of like unbelievably dumb, but she plays it with so much warmth that you're like, yeah, yeah I buy that she doesn't know what her husband does. Of course, there yeah. are women like that. He works at a warehouse. Yeah, yeah. That's all she knows. I am. Um, I was really sort of. I agree with everything you're saying, Carrie, which is that he's not a mustache twirling villain. He's just a shitty guy. He's just like a guy that just kind of doesn't really care that he has two kids in the world. Um, and But he does say some pretty shitty things about their mom, like right to their face moments after seeing them for the first time in God knows how long. Um, and, and, and I do love the, um, you think mom's frigid in bed? With him, probably. Who wouldn't be? (laughs) Incredible. Um, And I also just love them at the train station and Erica being like, mom always had something to write with. It's just little things like that that make this movie sing for me. 100%. 
yeah it's it's uh, yeah go ahead sorry Emma. i mean as as a person who um hmm. has complicated relationships with like i have like 16 parents i have complicated relationships sure. with all of them but like uh finding my biological family like there was a few that, that this movie captures that feeling of like we don't really know this person but we're gonna go step into their lives anyway mm-hmm. and this with the situation for me went a lot better but it's very much like you know the person is sort of like mm, I, I don't have room for you in this life that i've constructed you are an inconvenient you know piece of that and i think that that uh it captures that set of feelings really well which may be why i fucking love samantha mathis in this because again she's just me <laughs> like <laughs> i i mean i i totally agree with you emily that like it, it taps into this idea of which i imagine is very common which is you know people get into relationships that they shouldn't be in people have children that they you know, might not really want because they think that, you know, it's the next step in this relationship or it's, it's what we're supposed to do. Um, and, and I, I, I appreciate the messiness of the third act of this movie, right. That it, that it tries to wrap his arms around something that is kind of unknowable for these kids. Like he, he's, he's a big question mark for them. All they know is he doesn't like carpeting. <laughs> and also like the very 15 year old, fantasy that there is this alternate life that you could have that is so much better than the one you're living and all of the adults knowing you know kid if your dad's not in the picture for this long like there's probably a reason for that it's probably like I don't think this life that you are imagining exists but like no one wants to say that to her obviously it's like one of those things you have to learn for yourself which is so like 15 years old being like i just know that if i get away from like the life i'm living right now there's there is something better and i love the like heartbreak of it when she's on the train back and she's crying and little gabby hoffman puts her hand on top of her hand it's It's so it's so little sis like it's (laughs) just the best little sister moment where like she'll like 30 minutes later fucking murder you with some withering one line but for right now like she's gonna hold your hand and be like the big sister even though she's the little sister i love it yeah y'all have convinced me i need to have another baby (laughs) name opal yeah yeah yeah. i i you know the whether or not the, the the dad stuff totally works i think a lot of it does what it gets you is so worth it. Maybe not totally working in the sense of this scene on the train between the two of them, um, between Opal and, and Erica, um, this, the fact that Opal goes with her part of it because she doesn't want her sister to go alone, but also because she's probably genuinely curious about her father and the two of them on that train afterwards and just kind of really soaking in how shitty this guy is right and that they're so much better off without him in their life and that her mother's better off without him like that that's kind of a big part of it too that idea of like we don't want our mom to be with this guy that that's you know that is really special and then the reconciliation at the train station which you know is tropey as fuck totally works for me like i get i i i got absolutely teary-eyed when they all hug and I just I don't know the, the, the that that notion that like you don't know what you've got until it's gone but really like it's 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 just it's it's really really lovely and and I also feel like the three of them in that moment um 
as a viewer, you realized how much you missed that dynamic. Like, even if it was only gone for 10, 12 minutes, however long it was, how much you missed them back together again. Um, and then this, them on the fucking couch writing a sitcom about their life. It's just adorable. That, the conclusion at the train station is the one time the Carly Simon just becomes too much for me because it's so <laughs> it's so turned up in the sound. Oh, it's way like, too yeah. high in the mix. <laughs> and isn't it, isn't it the, like, you're the love of my life yes, yes, song, yeah. which is just like, oh, enough. It comes up in, like, six other tracks of the, like, ten, like, it's in a lot. It's 100%. just like, we, oh, we, we get it. We get it, Miss Simon. We get we get it, Miss Simon. Carly Simon, another person who, that's a life. She's had a real roller coaster. Carly uh, Simon, fa- famous fear of flying, girly. <laughs> you could, yeah, well, yeah. I, I mean, it, it is, um, it's a really lovely movie. And I kind of was like unsure um, how it was going to play because I had not seen it since I was 12. Um, but it really worked for me. Um, shall we rate this movie? Unless, uh, Emily, sure. you have something else? You I mean, I I always, uh, no, I don't actually, like, all of my tangents are about M. Night Shyamalan's knock at the cabin, and we don't need that right now. So let's just, like, go <laughs> on with the podcast. About? <laughs> what does that have to do with this movie? Nothing. A friend of mine was just like, I'm watching M. Night Shyamalan's knock at the cabin. Okay. I was like, why don't I just bring that up on the podcast? No, we're not talking about yeah, it. We're moving that's, on. That's a lot. That's on. a whole other thing. Uh, so coming into this podcast, I was at like a 72 and now I'm at like an 80. I think this movie is a lot better than I think this conversation helped highlight for me a lot of the things that work about this movie. Um, so I'm at an 80. Where are you, Emily? Uh, 75. You know, I, I came okay. in 75. I'm, I'm going out 75. Roger Ebert, uh, three out of four stars feels just about right to me. You, you, it's not all there yet. Nor She yeah. makes some weird creative choices, mostly about how loud to turn up the Carly Simon songs. Um, <laughs> But, uh, you know, it, it, she, you can see why she became, like, one of the seminal uh, uh, yeah. directors of her, her era. Um, queer phobia scale, I'm going to mm. say, I'm going to yeah. say a four, not because this movie is particularly queer phobic, but because she should have confirmed that, those, that, that Mia and Lynn were lesbians. Yeah. There yeah. should have been a scene where they said, we're lesbians, and it's okay, young Emily, <laughs> you can be a lesbian, too. And then they should have, like, held hands. It would have been great. Yeah. I agree. <laughs> uh, Carrie, what about you? Yeah, I'm a solid 80, maybe 82, but like, I think, bef- I, I don't know, on Letterboxd, for like the past few reviews, I had like three, like three and a half out of five. And then yep. the last time I watched it, I was like, what am I holding this half star back for? It's a four. Oh, it's an okay. 80. Yeah. All right. Um, so I got to ask, and maybe this is an obvious question, but favorite Nora Ephron movie, Carrie? Oh, Phil. It's constant. It's constant. It's constantly changing. But I do think, Today. I do think it is. I think it is more often than not the one that comes out on top for me is "You've Got Mail," which I think is spikier than most people. People think it's a warm and cuddly movie. It's you got Parker Posey in that movie. She's so good in that movie. She's perfect in that movie. No, I love it. I think it's like the best of both worlds of like the it's a it is a warm hug of a movie but it's also got a lot of very catty very classic Nora Ephron wit in it Emily what's your favorite Nora Ephron I think you've got mail I rewatched that last year when when the baby was brand new and like we were just looking for stuff we could watch and it was around Christmas time 
So I was like, I'm going to watch this again. And you know that every so often there's like a prompt that goes around Twitter that's like, what movie would you like to live in? And people sure. are like, I'd love to live in the Avengers or I'd love to live in Jurassic Park. And I'm like, no, you wouldn't. That would suck. And then I watched You've Got Mail and I was like, I'd like to live in like late 90s, perpetually on the edge of the holidays, New York. That sounds great. Perfect. Yeah. You've Got Mail. That's yeah. And the Internet has not swallowed the world yet. Yeah. So and there's still a lot of rent controlled apartments. But it's there. You can start a GeoCities page if you want to. You'll be fine. You'll yeah, be great. You can do whatever you want. Yeah. Speaking of rent control departments, can we all agree that the apartment she has in this movie is gigantic? <laughs> but it's on the Upper West Side. It's on the Upper West Side oh, okay. in the early 90s. Okay. This is this is my thing with like people being like, Nora Ephron's characters are all privileged. I'm like, you're lo- looking at the Upper West Side before it was like a privileged area. No one wanted to live on the Upper West Side until like the late 90s mid to late 90s they're all in rent controlled like that is a classic rent controlled pre-war high 90s way over to the west side this is me getting new york niche on you (laughs) but like i love this no i i I, it looks like an apartment i like i've lived in before that was like dirt cheap it's just like of the time yeah i think I, I don't. Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. I think you know. Obviously, the classic one is people are like, "How do the friends afford their apartments?" And I mean that. That's I don't know enough about New York to say for sure. But like one of the things we often forget when we're applying our modern lens on these things is that in the early '90s, you're on the very tail end of everybody wanted to live in the suburbs because they were scared of cities, and the late '90s flips right. that around. So like, yeah, it, it, having a huge apartment, um, having just sold a house, like I, I bought it. I I was. Obviously, it does provide a bit of a ticking clock to the situation at the start, but then she becomes successful very quickly. So you don't like question that. That's true. Um, also, so Phil, Carrie, I'm, well, yeah. wait a second. Wait a second. We both gave our favorite Nora Ephron movies. What is yours? Well, okay. So I guess we're just not saying that When Harry Met Sally is a Nora Ephron movie, correct? She no, I think it, it is. Okay. I would count it. Yeah, I mean that's when it's when Harry met Sally. I mean it's it's a movie that I think I've seen the most of any movie. Like I've seen it innumerable times. Um, if I had to pick a, a runner-up for a movie that she directed solely, I, I I like Sleepless in Seattle, guys. I know that that's like a basic take, um, but I, I and I this isn't to say that I don't like You've Got Mail. I do. I rewatched that relatively recently and liked it a lot more than I did initially. Um, yeah, I think I'm just I'm a sucker for something that's a little softer. I know that makes me weak, but um, I don't think I it's a, I, that's it. But oh, but no, but I again, I'm like I don't. Yeah, maybe it's just me being a bitch and me on my like Nora Ephron was a bitch crusade. But I don't think her movies were always as like soft as people perceive them. No, to no, be. I, I agree. But I think Sleepless in Seattle is. is it's the softest. Yeah. But it's yeah. still, I don't think, soft. If we're, I don't uh, think it's a yeah, piece I don't, of cake. I, yeah. Okay. Well, if we're that. including the movies that she wrote, I actually might pick Silkwood. I love Silkwood. I think that movie is really well it's done. Really um, I do love When Harry Met Sally. Like, I, I just, it's such an easy answer that my, my. No, I know. I, it, it, it's, it's one of those things where when we did our 89 episode on, on When Harry Met Sally, it was almost hard to talk about just because, first of all, people have talked about it a bazillion times, but also just because, um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's, it's it's classical 
Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I, it almost just feels like it's its own thing. Um, and, and again, I don't want to take away from Rob Reiner's direction. So like, you know, whatever. I think that Nora Ephron as a director in her own right, I think, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I gotta, I gotta rewatch Mixed Nuts now, guys, because now I'm like, did I, did I not get Mixed Nuts since you guys? There are so parts famous? of it that have not aged well. Okay. So it, there are some parts of it that are like, there are parts of it that I think. There's the, what's his name, Liam. Uh, yeah. I can't, not Liam. I don't remember his name. Australian okay. actor. Oh, there are some like kind of transphobic parts, but then it's like it's like a little transphobic sometimes, but then it's like very like not very like this is totally normal. Like, but it just feels very of the '90s, being like we're gonna make some jokes about a trans woman because we don't understand it, but then we're also gonna be like being a trans woman is totally normal. What are you guys talking about? Right. It's very spotty on that part, which is where I say it doesn't age well. Yeah, it's uh, it's 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 a uh, Liev Schreiber. Liev, um, yes. Leave. and um, yeah, it's it is like a classic '90s. This movie is queer phobic and not. It's like walking, straddling that line of like that almost the will and grace line of like, well, we all know these people are ridiculous, but also they're human beings and we should care about them. And like, I, I, yeah, I, I do like, I do like mixed nuts a lot. And also the title of it is mixed nuts. So you can just about guess how it's aged. So, um, you know, buyer <laughs> beware. say part of the reason I'm looking at the cast of mixed nuts right now. And I'm starting to realize why, Carrie likes mixed nuts. It's because Madeline Kahn is in it. Madeline Kahn's great in it, but like Madeline <laughs> Kahn's part is kind of like ridiculous. Blanche Muchnik is the name of her. <laughs> <laughs> I I feel like if Robert, I might also my take is like Robert Klein should have had a bigger part. It's so I just for our listeners' sake. If say, Robert I Klein wanna... is in any movie, I need I need a little. They're always like giving you like a little sprinkle of Robert Klein. It needs so, to go up. Just oh. so our listeners know the cast of this movie for what it's worth. Steve Martin, Anthony LaPaglia, Juliette Lewis, Rob Reiner, Adam Sandler, Lee Schreiber, Gary Shandling, Rita Wilson, Parker Posey, and John Stewart as rollerbladers. I mean, it is just, it's it's a packed cast of just, yeah. I mean, it's incredible. It's a murderer's row. Shot by like Sven Nykist? Sven Nykist? Indeed. Yes. Sven Nykist like, directed on. it. It's, it's it's based on a French play that translates to Santa Claus is a stinker. Like, uh, <laughs> I honestly think I honestly think I like this movie because it takes place at Christmas and is like kind of a little bit That's dark and you weird and sad. Yes. It, is, it is, yeah. Mm-hmm. Also, I didn't know this movie was produced by uh, Paul Younger, Witt, and Tony Thomas of of uh, TV fame. They're the Golden, aren't they? Golden Girls and like a yeah, million they things? did seven billion things. I feel like they also produced Three Kings. Like I feel like that was a thing that happened. Yep, they did. They sure did. That that's an insomnia and in Dead Poets Society. It's, it's, we gotta do. We gotta we, do younger wit cast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, listen. This. So I am pretty convinced, Carrie, that you have not seen the film we're covering next week. Um, have you seen The Hand That Rocks the Cradle? Is that a movie you've no. seen? 
Is it, it? It's a scary movie, right? Scary's a word for it. I don't know. That's would you say it's scary, Emily? Did you find it scary? Uh, I just remember we recorded that as we were waiting to find out if we we're going on strike. So Correct. that's like that's like the tension. That movie's not scary. No, it's um, the tension of whether we went on strike is though. Like, and you <laughs> know what? That in the episode. That that episode has a surprise twist ending. It does. So you'll it be does. you'll be happy to. Hear I, it. I mean, Rebecca De Mornay's in it. Uh, Carrie, she plays a murderous nanny. Um, but it's, it's like a, suspenseful. Okay, it's like a suspenseful thriller. Yeah. Not not it's like, my it's bag. A, it's like an early Curtis Hansen movie. Um, it's we had a, a Clayton Davis and. Oh my God! Why am I drawing a blank on her name? Courtney Howard. Yeah. Uh, two two film critics from from uh, Variety came on to talk about it with us. Uh, it's a great episode. The movie's weird, a lot weirder than I than super, I super strange. Yes, it's a lot stranger than I than I remembered it being. But um, but Carrie, thank you so much for coming on and talking Nora with us. I mean, thank you as always for letting me come on and be insane, Carrie. Please, I expect nothing less than for than for every time Carrie is on, I feel like it needs to be Carrie at eleven. Otherwise, what's the point, right? I don't yeah. know. Listen, <laughs> that's why I'm like, I think people are sick of me. They're not. They're not. I promise you. I'm here every I'm week, and I'm I'm here every week, and I'm constantly being like, let's talk about some other thing entirely. Yeah, let's talk so, about fucking <laughs> cabin at the door. Or knock door at the whatever. cabin. Knock at the cabin. Knock at the. Still in my top ten for the year so far. By really? The way. I love That's that movie. All right. Well, my, I, I yeah. just. I just it needs to be said, Carrie, that I know we are currently attempting. I am currently attempting to wrangle the Redford ladies on a Patreon episode to talk about Robert Redford. It's going to happen. Whether you like it or not, Carrie, it's going to happen. And the look on her face says she doesn't want it to happen. And listen, if you want to, if you want to come back, we still got Beethoven open. That's that. Yeah, Beethoven's uh, there Captain for taking. Captain you want to talk Ron. about uh, Charles Groden? We can talk uh, about Charles I have Groden. not seen that movie in so long. Yeah. Do you know no, they made eight you? Beethoven movies? There's eight when we do Beethoven, Beethoven oh, I'm going to watch all eight of them. <laughs> Assuming they're available. <laughs> Actually, I have a friend who's really good at pirating. I'm going to be oh, like, hey, okay. I, I, just get me all eight Beethovens what right if, now. What if the Christmas Beethoven movie is like your favorite Christmas movie, Emily? Have you thought about that? <laughs> <laughs> It'll be a Christmas special. It'll be a Christmas miracle. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for coming on, Carrie. And I'm going to force you to come on again in the future. It's going to be great. Okay, thanks. <laughs> Talk to you later. Bye. <laughs> Bye. The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. 
Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com.